0: Also, is this the first time we've managed to record from three different continents?
1: Yes. No, John was in America doing some Did I record from the
2: States though?
0: I didn't record from Germany or something. That doesn't count.
2: I definitely recorded from Vienna, but Vienna's in Europe.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, but England isn't.
2: <laughs> yep, no true.
1: To <laughs> <laughs> Pumtish.
0: Let me draw you a map. <laughs>
2: Hello everyone and welcome to the very 95th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 26th of October 2023. I'm John Coxon.
1: I'm
0: Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty.
2: And today I have written in my calendar that Hispaniel will be doing Halloween decorating, so she may be listening to this while she's doing that. And if she is, I love you my co-hosts are utterly baffled by this public display of affection in the way that befits British people.
0: I, think I like this display of affection.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is the bringing of pancakes to John while he is on the podcast by Espania.
1: Okay, so tomorrow, Stephen will be shipping something that I accidentally sold on eBay in the middle of my cup trip. <laughs> Hi, honey, I love you.
2: Shall we do some letters of comment? So the first letter of comment, and arguably the most important one, was a letter of comment from Laurie of Hugo Girl, who said, thank you, next year is your year. And that is because Hugo Girl won the Hugo for Best Fan Cast, and we're very happy.
1: Yay! Hurrah! Yeah, we're very pleased for them. Yay, yay, yay. Well done. Well done, podcast buddies. That was very good.
2: I would have had a champagne breakfast, but I'm tired, so I'm having a coffee breakfast like normal.
1: I was fast asleep for the Hugos. I was very, con- I was definitely going to stay up for the Hugos, but it was all a bit much, and
0: I went to bed. I mean, we'll get into it.
1: Yeah, so by the time I'd woken up, um, I'd lost two Hugos.
0: I've, I've forgotten you lost two Hugos. Sorry, Alison. <laughs> it's okay. It might be all for the best, because... As I'm sure we'll get into later, I'm not sure it would have been that easy to actually watch the Hugos. I did not watch the Hugos either because I was at the ballet. But fortunately, they announced our category literally like two minutes before I had to turn my phone off and put it away. So I knew it lost. And I was like, OK, well, I'll watch some dancing instead.
1: If I had watched the Hugos, I wouldn't have tried to log in. I'd have just joined this Seattle Zoom and chatted to other people who were trying to watch the Hugos. But in practice, I didn't do that. I went to bed.
2: We had other letters of comment. We had a letter of comment from Dave Mansfield. Dave said that Liz's mic sucked the last two weeks. Sorry to listeners who noticed that. Uh, basically, Liz has a new microphone. This is very exciting. And there will be like a few teething problems here and there until we get that sorted out. I want to discuss Dave's next point. He stopped his Patreon for Pod, And he mentioned on the Discord that about a quarter of their recent episodes were literally unlistenable due to audio quality. So someone would reply and he'd respond and someone would reply and he'd respond and say things like they're trying to get more diverse voice readers and he'd reply that they make a point of saying these aren't amateurs and Escape Pod pays all their contributors and the other people on the Discord said he was being a dickhead and then he is not voting for Escape Pod in the Hugo's. There is a difference between a semi pro zine and a professional media organisation. A semi-pro zine will pay its contributors a professional wage, but they are semi-pro. If the BBC ships one of its contributors a microphone and it doesn't work, that will be discovered half an hour after it doesn't work, and a new one will arrive half an hour after that, and that process will repeat until it is fine. Escape Pod doesn't have that level of ability, and if they're trying to bring in more diverse voices, those more diverse voices will be in a position of financial privilege, which is substantially less than any of the three of us recording this. And I do think it's probably important to bear that in mind.
1: I'm going to give a simple version of the other thing, though, which is I don't listen to podcasts I can't listen to. And I think that's a very common approach. So it would be better to have fewer, more diverse voices and give them equipment than to have voices I can't listen to. It should bring voices on one at a time as it can afford to equip them. Because I don't think there's any point... Recording narrators that people can't hear. I would say here, the BBC has plenty of unlistenable podcasts that are terribly recorded, especially with intrusive background noise and music that make them impossible to listen to. And, you know, it's not it's not just small producers that have troubles producing listenable content.
0: I mean, I was going to say, I think I'm somewhere in the middle, which is I kind of sympathise with both sides. I think there is a need to work out, you know, on on the part of podcasts with minimal budget, what is the kind of minimum viable setup? And I will say I've been recording the podcast for three years on what is I think a twenty quid headset microphone. And I don't think the sound is quite as great as it has been from you two with actual more professional microphones, but I think it was okay and listenable. So I think the need here is to say, okay, what is the minimum amount of tech we need? Is that tech something that can be acquired in the places where your diverse readers are? And to kind of, yeah, maybe either commit to providing that for your, re- for your, not readers, for your narrators, or is it a need for something where they say, okay, we're going to have to run a fundraiser so we can get better equipment? That can be part of our Kickstarter or our goals for next year to try and get that up. Because I I do think there is a real risk that if you're producing, you know, content with more diverse voices, but then those voices in particular are the ones who have kind of poor production values, and there's a risk that people will stop listening specifically to those diverse voices.
2: I completely agree with that. I think, I think, and I think the thing I would want... I think the thing I think would help Dave's point a lot is if he had started with the phrase speaking as someone coming from a position of wealth privilege, I think that. Because I think the real problem with the way you're framing it, Dave, is that it doesn't seem to me like you are taking that into account when you're complaining about this. And like it might be that you are, but nothing in your words actually says that. And I do think it's worth making people aware that that's true when you have these arguments because that was the first thing that leapt out to me and I feel like I'm probably a sympathetic reader of your complaints so someone who doesn't know you from Adam it's an interesting thing to think about how you provide constructive criticism to projects you like because I think there is a way of doing it that will make it hard for them to take that criticism on board this is something I think a lot about because I'm in um, science communication and most of my job on that side of things is working out how to tell people things in ways that will be accessible to them and be something they want to hear. Speaking truth to power is great, but it's not it's not useful if the person you're speaking to has no obligation to listen, if that makes sense.
1: I think we also talk a bit about the microphone end of this whereas the the things that cause people with lower wealth privilege to have trouble creating clear sound are may extend to things like the room they're in or the people they're sharing their space with which are much harder to solve than than just getting yourself a headset mic
2: yeah so i because i live in a i mean Alison and i both live in five bedroom houses where we have rooms where we can podcast uninterrupted for two hours and be sure that that will not be interrupted unless we ask our spouses to bring us breakfast And coffee. And I think if you think about all of the forms of privilege that are inherent in the sentence I have just said and really dived into them, you'd be like, oh, man, those peeps, they got a lot of privilege right there. Like, "Mm, I drink my Colombian coffee drink, which I can afford to buy from the market. Mm." And it's like,
0: have you got five bedrooms, John? Yep. Do you have like a secret hidden wing I didn't go in? Because I don't (laughs) remember all those bedrooms.
2: You know the glorified cupboard next to the spare room, Liz?
0: Yeah. Oh.
2: That is officially a bedroom.
0: Ah, that's a cupboard.
2: Welcome to the Privilege Zone.
0: (laughs) I will finish this by saying, what I have noticed while recording this is that I really need a pop filter for this microphone, so I apologise to the listeners.
1: Also, I don't have a pop filter this week, so John, you must have some sort of software plosives thing because I have got like a sock on it, but i couldn't I couldn't afford space to bring a pop filter
2: and you see you see the other problem, Dave, which is look at these two <laughs> I love you both very much so Esther says that she will uh, arrange the cage fight between Chris and Abigail. And rest assured, she is a certified doctor and professor of game studies, meaning that many years of drinking red potions and eating chickens I found on shelves and in other people's rucksacks means that she is well equipped to be the medical professional on site. And then she talked about Glasgow Presents and she noted that it is, it was set up by uh, Meg McDonald and Marita Averati and it's being run by Pam Livingston and Robin Duncan they thought it was going to be a couple of pandemic panels, and it's basically spawned into this collection of nearly 40 panels on various topics. And she notes this: that she thinks that hyper innovation is something that they should be encouraging. And yes, no, there is a good point well made. We got a new listener emailed in, um, or maybe not a new listener, maybe a long-time listener, but first-time caller. S.J. Johnson said that they wanted to say they really enjoyed the podcast, and they thanked Alison's recommendation of the actual star by monica burns which is their best read so far this year they're in melbourne did you meet sj johnson (laughs) allison Alison has gave me a look
1: i don't think so no what what year is it what day is it what continent is it ah yeah no i i've probably got a list somewhere no i don't think i met sj johnson sorry sj johnson i was in melbourne for the first time in my life about Two and a half weeks ago, um, it would be lovely to meet up. And she'll never be back. Join Nova Mob, which is a Melbourne Science Fiction Society, or the Melbourne SF Society, which is another Melbourne SF Society. Chris Garcia
2: emailed us about our best novel uh, episode. Oh, hang on, and also emailed us on the other episode, Lock Number One. He says that Alison pronounces the word "gif" wrong.
1: No, no, no. He said that before. We've said he's wrong before. We're done now, right?
2: Yep and we'll come back to that when we discuss Jeff. and then he also said that the um he wrote in about our best novel episode and said that the best episode uh the best of the novels was the spare man and i would characterize every single other lock we got on that episode as uh fundamentally disagreeing with him on that point uh, our comments on the spare man resonated with our listenership yeah a lot of people didn't like that book
0: I feel a bit bad because I think when I listened back to the episode, that's the one where I really kind of... I think it was me and Alison, we both went off on one in exactly the same direction. And so we were maybe a little bit harsh. Might have been a bit harsh.
2: Yeah, I didn't think it was a great book, but I liked it a heck of a lot more than you two did. (laughs) And we now know who won, foreshadowing. And I have rants.
0: Well, that makes it worse. Really, because if it had won, then it'd be like, well, who cares if these two podcasters didn't like it? (laughs) But since it didn't win, I feel a bit worse.
2: Well, we haven't got the stats yet, so we don't know. It could have come second, but we'll see. We got so many letters of comment. We thank you all for writing in. You're all very lovely. Is there anything else we want to particularly pick up on before we stop talking about letters of comment? Because there were so many comments and we can't read them all.
1: I don't think we could pull out all of the letters of comment, but thank you to everyone who
0: sent commiserations.
2: Yes, thank you very much to everyone who did.
1: Which is Raj, but I'm sure there'll be more.
0: I want to pull out one thing from Abigail's comment, which I agree with, which is her definition of cosy fantasy runs more towards something like Catherine Addison's The Goblin Emperor, where the main character triumphs by extending trust and generosity, but finding people who are decent and kind to promote and rely on, but still places meaningful challenges in his path. And I would agree with all that, and I like The Goblin Emperor. And yeah, I think that feels like a cosy nice book to read because problems get overcome and it feels like the world is becoming a better place through this one person but not because they don't do anything and things just kind of work out
1: very realistic depiction of civil service and why you need one i, I you know it's it's a good book i really like Addison.
2: yeah it is a good book i'm glad that liz put kicked it out because i also loved that book when i read it on the hugo shortlist and i found it very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> i disagree fundamentally that it's cozy oh, really? yeah it had lots of interpersonal conflict in it i there were several parts where i had to put it down and come back to it later um so yes
1: it's not cozy in the way that legends and lattes is
0: cozy you know i've had
1: sweaters that were less cozy than legends and lattes
0: it's cozy it in the way that makes me feel better about the prospects of the world in a way but not cozy in a yeah in a this is like a comfy blanket way
2: it is a great book, though. I think we all agree with that. highly recommend readers, if you've not read The Goblin Emperor, go seek that out because it is 10 out of 10. Well, maybe not 10 out of 10. Maybe 5 out of 5. Good reads. But, um, but yeah, great book. So we're talking about the Hugos. We might as well carry on talking about the Hugos, right? What won a Hugo?
1: Nettle and Bone won the best novel, Hugo, which is quite a good thing because it involved, prevented me from having to you know, scream loudly and prolongedly.
2: Yes. That is fair. So, yeah, so okay, should we do the good ones first and then the bad ones? Or should we do it the other way around?
0: We should do it in some kind of order.
1: How often am I allowed to say in the course of this episode, if only we had the long list at the point we were recording this episode?
2: That is the only time you're allowed to say it. I don't disagree. <laughs> But at the time of recording, we do, not have the, we do not have the full stats. So this is wild speculation. But it's good because it means we can ring, we wring the speculation water out of the Hugo's next episode where we do have the full stats. Or maybe the episode after that. I can't remember what our recording schedule is. Uh, we should also say thank you to Nicholas White. Because without Nicholas, we would not know anything that happened in the Hugo ceremony. <laughs> so thanks,
1: Nicholas. Also, we should maybe thank him for being our designated acceptor.
2: Yes, we would like to take credit for the fact that Nicholas was in a position to be the correspondent we needed him to be. Uh, But no, we we asked Nicholas uh, to be our acceptor and he very graciously accepted.
1: He was also my acceptor. And I got an email at about, I don't know, well into yesterday going, you have not sent me a speech. (laughs) If you want to send me a speech, please send it to me by WeChat because it's the only thing that works here. And so I had to get back into my WeChat account whilst, you know, in Melbourne, trying to do guff things. In Melbourne, where am I? Whilst in Wellington trying to do guff things. Um, And I did manage to get back into my WeChat account, despite the fact that I was on a different continent from the last time I've used it. And friends, that's not always easy. Um, And I did send him a speech, which obviously he didn't need to use, which did not surprise me in the slightest.
2: The Astounding Award went to Travis Baldry, who wrote Legends of Lattes,
1: I do not think I do not think he was the best option in that category, but I am not surprised that he won.
2: that is fair. I can't remember who else was in that. I don't think I read very widely in in astounding
0: well i was I voted for Isabel Kim in that category
1: Isabel King,
0: yeah, has got short their short fiction is great, but I'm not particularly surprised that the person who is also in best novel was maybe read by a lot of people as well
2: yep. That is that is very fair. And, like, you know, um, it might be that as Baldry matures as a writer, he uh, writes slightly less cosy things that is more to your taste, but it also might not be.
1: Well, also, I think he's already quite mature as a writer, and he was writing a particular sort of fan fiction. I'm sure he can write other things. It was a very competent book.
2: But he's not... I don't mean, like, I've written a lot of things, but if I wrote a novel you wouldn't use my, like, papers as evidence that I could write. you know what I mean? Like, I, he has written a lot, but not in this form, I guess. i was basically just being slightly optimistic about things in my sort of general, vaguely positive way.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he can write better things because I don't think there's anything... There isn't anything wrong with the novel. It's just not a, not what I'm looking for in a science fiction novel. So, you know, it's not really a matter of maturing. It's a matter of kind of changing novelistic direction. Which you'll probably do if the money in this particular novelistic direction runs out or if the ideas run out.
2: And then in Lodestar, it was A Cat and Woman by Neddy Okorafor, which, as previously discussed, I think is the weakest of those six, but I guess it resonated with people.
1: And I think I have not read most of these six books. Liz, have you read these six? No. No, I've read one of them,
2: so I can't really judge. Was it the Rachel Hartman?
0: No, it was the Naomi Novik.
2: Oh, yeah. Have you read the Rachel Hartman?
0: I've read the other ones in the series, but not this one.
2: So I read it, obviously, in my way, having not read any of the rest of the series, because, you know, I'm an absolute legend. I loved it. I thought it was so good. It makes me want to go back and read the previous installment. Uh, I thought it was really, really, really good. Hispania uh, didn't, Uh, in in what regular (laughs) listeners may come to be learning, is a recurring theme. Uh, (laughs) But no, well done to Okorofor for A Catwoman. A Catwoman um, Cat, is the third in a trilogy, the previous two installments of which I had not read, so I don't know whether it's sort of better if you read it, <laughs> having read the others.
0: Can I go off on a tiny tangent for you, John? This is probably not for podcast, but I was watching the ballet of Anna Karenina yesterday, and it had, like, little intertitles to tell you what was happening in each mini-act or dance. And one of them was, yeah. like... In the Karenin household, there is a marital discord. And I don't know, I just think you and Hispania have a marital discord. Oh, not like the
1: Karenins. No, not like the Karenins. I mean, come on now.
0: We
2: don't have a marital discord. We have an iMessage chat. A joke.
0: <laughs>
2: that was a good story. Thank you, Liz. Best fan artist, Richard Mann. Um, so Richard did my wedding photography. He is a very talented man. He it makes me laugh whenever I hang out with him. Uh, I was glad to see him uh, win this, especially because he has been doing adjacent stuff for a long time.
1: He, he does a lot of very good work photographing a lot of people. Yes. Uh, photographing a lot of people at conventions.
2: Um. I mean, obviously, I'm sad for Alison and for Hispania that they did not win. And for Ian, uh, that he did not win. And Orion and Leia are probably lovely people, but I've got no skin in the game. Sorry, Orion and Leia, if you're listening. Uh, but Richard is... I, yeah. It, this was a category where I would have been happy... Like, There's like four of the six people that would have made me absurdly happy to see them win a Hugo. So like, this was kind of a win-win for me in many ways. Obviously not being one of the nominees helps. Sorry, one of the finalists.
1: One of the finalists. I'm, it's an honour just to be nominated. Chris M.
2: Barkley one best fan writer um again this is probably very eminently deserved i think i am slightly sad that it wasn't bitter carella who remains one of my absolute favorite uh, fan writers in the genre generally but um but no i think i think chris barkley winning is a really good thing very difficult to be annoyed by that congratulations to chris and congratulations to richard not sure if i actually said that out loud <laughs> and then it was hugo girl transatlantic besties yay yeah, and I'm, I wasn't surprised by this, if I'm honest. I sort of expected them to take it, because last year they came third or second, I think. And so I was like, they got a good chance. And indeed, they have won.
0: Hurrah! Hooray! And uh, instantly recused themselves for future years. Did they? That's
1: sweet. Best fanzine, Zero Gravity. I'm probably the only one of us who's read this at all. I quite enjoyed the bits of it I read, and I read it by randomly throwing chunks of it into Google Translate. Um, so I probably didn't get the perfect um, thing. But it was all fascinating stuff about the development of science fiction fandom in China. And I was like, Oh, I never knew that. I never knew that. I mean, it turns out there's a lot of stuff in the world I never knew. Um, and this co- complete obsession I have with learning everything is not doing me any favors. But anyway, I like learning those bits. So well done, Zero Gravity.
0: It does sound fascinating. Is it I'm thinking of it as kind of a sort of Chinese version of Rob Hansen. Is that fair? <laughs> I don't think it is. I think the, their episodes are different. Right, different
1: episodes are. It's got a little bit of um, it's got a little bit of um, Journey Planet about it as well. And I think they've got some crossover work. So some of the stuff they have uh, have published is some of the stuff that appeared in the Chinese issue of Journey Planet, and there's some links there. And some of the stuff they were doing was kind of reaching out to science fiction fans in different places and writing greetings from them. So, you know, it's, it's just all that bringing fans together that gives me that, such a warm, cosy feeling.
0: Yeah, I'll just say that given that I think not as many of the finalists were at the ceremony as maybe in other years, because it was in China, it... It does seem pretty nice that actually, you know, Chris Barkley and Richard Mann won and, you know, Zero Gravity Newspaper won. All people who would be there to collect in person, which is really nice. Semi-prosean, you've already
1: put in a rant about that.
2: I mean, we know Uncanny's great. I don't need to be told it every year. Like, there's more in the genre than this. It's very frustrating. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop my Patreon to it because I'm increasingly uncomfortable with the distorting effect it's having on the genre. Uh, and yeah, I think I think if anyone from Uncanny is listening, the reason I am not subscribing to you anymore is because you are dominating that category and it is not healthy for science fiction in general.
0: It's very good. It's tricky. I mean, we've had this discussion about Recusal before because they do very good. They do stories is the problem, but I think other. Other places do very good stories as well, and I do want some of them to start getting a bit more recognition.
1: We had this with um, Ansible all those years ago, and False and for that matter, and Locus, and you know.
2: And Dave Langford. I cannot think of a run of double-digit winners where people look back and say it was very good that that thing won all those times. Every single time someone looks back on the history of the genre, it is, oh, it was bad that that happened. And so I do think I kind of need to think a little bit about their long-term legacy, because if they are mentioned in the same breath as all these problem winners, is that good for
1: them? I don't know. So you're going to be at the business meeting at Glasgow, right, John? (laughs) I mean... So you'll put forward a proposal for automatic recusal after three successive wins?
2: No, because Neil Clark already thinks I hate semi so I can't do that.
1: Well, it's not just for semi-proteen. True for anything. you win three successive times. You get not... You can't... go And that goes for authors for books. If you as an author win with three successive novels, you're out for a year.
2: I don't mind it, but we should have this conversation another day because there's a lot to talk about today.
1: and <laughs> <laughs> Zhao, I, I don't have opinions on professional artists this year, really.
0: I have an opinion, which is that they were all great, but I really, really liked NJ Zhao's stuff because it was... A little bit of a different style. It reminded me a bit of sort of Stefan Martinier's stuff that he did for, you know, like Ian McDonald's books a while back. I really love all that kind of giant spaceships and cityscapes and everything. I, they just looked amazing. So I'm very glad with that winner.
2: Oh yeah, no, I liked I liked their stuff a lot as well. Especially the one of the um headed woman looking at the spacecraft engines was was very, very good. Um I think I think I'm right in saying I did not put them top, but like, I am not at all annoyed that they won. And in general, as as in many years, I thought that the art on offer was like extremely beautiful and lovely. So uh, pff, no bad options.
0: I dithered a lot about the rankings for professional artists. Yeah. I think I dithered about that more than for maybe any other category because I just can't rank them on anything other than this looks the prettiest to me. And that's, it's a really hard thing to judge. So
1: I want to be ranking artists on how well they're illustrating the thing they're supposed to be illustrating. And I often don't know.
2: This is why Alison hates Chris Foss. What? Well, he never illustrated the thing he was supposed to be illustrated. He just, he just drew cool spaceships. But I have two books of his art and one of his originals on my wall. So I am very much not on the context train. I am on the pretty art train. Um, I think the one I voted for was D- Jian Zhang. Their art reminded me a lot of John Harris in a way, uh, and I'm a big fan of John Harris's work as well. Um, so yes, um, but yes, no, good, good stuff. We don't talk about editors, uh, so congratulations to Lindsay Hall for winning. Uh, I'm sure that she edited real good. Neil Clark won best editor short form. He is undoubtedly a very good editor, so well done to him.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, I wanted to say it was particularly nice for Neil Clark to win at a Chinese WorldCon. Yes. Because Clarksworld has done so many translations from Chinese authors. So I think it's particularly nice that he gets to win there and get the recognition there, where there's a lot of authors who might owe their first English language translations to Clarksworld. So well done.
2: Mm -mm -mm. So best dramatic presentation fundamentally abdicated its responsibility to do anything interesting or cool uh but you know i expected i expected everything everywhere to win cuz is very good even though i think it has won a lot of things already so i wish uh, severance had won but what on earth the expanse was doing beating andor i have no clue
1: come on hugo listenership having been around for longer go on andor give us seven series star wars has been around for longer
0: this is the first of several times i'll probably say it's going to be really interesting if we can work out how much influence the chinese vote had because Definitely it did in other categories. It'd be really interesting to me to know whether, like, The Expanse is super popular there, you know, because it's this big space opera type show. And it seems like that is a quite a big thing in Chinese fandom. Or if it's just everyone really loves The Expanse.
1: Because you will be like, didn't you vote for everything everywhere all at once? And no, in fact, I didn't. I decided that you were quite right and Severance deserved my vote. Oh. I I, I had an impact. If I was writing an impact case
2: study, I'd be like, I impacted Alison. Um, Do you want to talk about this in more detail, or do you want to just put in what we already said?
1: No, no, I think you you, you argued in the podcast that actually everything, everywhere, all at once has won every award available all over the world, all at once, and they didn't necessarily need a Hugo, whereas it might make a real difference to Severance, which is probably scrabbling for... Um, support in the way that streaming shows often do.
0: So I would say, I think if we think the Hugos really have every, any influence over the renewal of streaming shows, I think we are too tiny a thing to really affect that. But also, it is tricky when the best science fiction. <laughs> Look, they've just built a building for the Hugo. they've just built a building for the Worldcon, you know. <laughs> How much more impact could they have? Yeah. Do we think Apple TV
1: care or notice? I don't know. I mean, Hades, which had sold far more things than, you know, books ever sell, was incredibly delighted by their Hugo.
0: Oh, I mean, they can be delighted. I just don't think it will, you know, particularly help a show that's on the edge of renewal. I just don't think it will tip the needle much one way or another. Like, I don't think they're making a sequel to Hades because it won a Hugo. I think they're making a sequel to Hades because they sold a billion copies.
1: A million, to be fair, but yes.
0: <laughs> I would say it's also tricky when, like, A really great film, which is recognised as the best of the year, also happens to be a science fiction film because you want to reward it for being a great science fiction film. But yeah, it's also it's got a lot of other awards. It's not often that the Oscars are like giving loads of awards to things that are in the running for the Hugo's, unless it's like Lord of the Rings.
2: I shouldn't make it sound like I'm very grumpy that Everything Everywhere All at Once won because it is obviously a very worthy winner i mean like you know there have been previous best dramatic presentation long form winners such as wonder woman which were much more inexplicable but uh but yeah no there's just a
1: small in fact it may be one of the best films ever to win best dramatic presentation long form that's a take
2: (laughs) that is actually that is actually potentially true also it had roughly infinitely more asians in it than severance did (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I think Severance had none, uh and I wonder if you're um you're having the awards with lots of um Asian voters, you might find that films that represent at least you know small segments of the Asian experience might do better. I don't think any of us are surprised by the best related work winner
1: no, but it's another British winner, so that's quite nice. It's quite pleased
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I should say i i the way I said that was ambiguous i, I think I think a deserved win, yes. Cyberpunk 2077 won in Best Graphic Story or Comic. I'm sure I saw someone say that it appeared on a couple of Chinese lists of like things to nominate. So I, I assume it's popular in China. Um, so maybe that was an effect. But I don't know. I have not read it. I have not played the video game either. I have a vague resentment towards the video game because I blame it for getting Android Netrunner cancelled.
0: See episode, wherever it was, where John monologues on Android Netrunner as his pick.
2: Yes. Anyone else read it?
0: No, I didn't get to it. But I, again, I think this is something you can point to potentially the influence of the, the Chinese vote being stronger than a maybe split non-Chinese vote. Although no, it's transferable vote. You don't really get vote splits. But you see what I mean? I was very pleased to see that Children of Time won Best Series. Yeah, big surprise. The
2: Best Series winning the Best Hugo.
1: Oh, you know, there were other good series on the list, but yeah.
2: Well, that I mean, right, and that's the thing it was and, and, and i think actually so congratulations to adrian i have no idea if you listen to adrian but if you do a very hearty congratulations
1: yeah we want you to win lots more hugos yes please we want you to keep winning hugos to the point where we're going god it's adrian shagovsky again when is he going to recuse himself Uh,
2: i would like to say officially here that my opinions on recusation do not extend to adrian tchaikovsky and if adrian won all five of the fiction hugos every year forevermore i would be down um i would also say this means that children of time can have the clark award winner logo and the hugo award winner logo on its front cover and there are not that many novels that meet that brief
1: not half i mean are there any
2: I wasn't going to make any categorical statements because I don't know. But I also want to say, like, the competition he is up against in this category, like, it is fierce competition, so it is a a very good win.
0: Sorry, I just obviously had to go and look if there's anything that could be both a Hugo winner and a Clark Award winner, and there is Ancillary Justice, because it won everything. Uh, Including the Clark. Yeah, it won the Hugo, the Nebula, the BSFA, the Clark, and the Locus Award. Woohoo. Good lord. And also uh The City in the City.
2: Okay. So two thirds of those are Stone Cold classics.
0: <laughs> now to be fair, Ancillary
2: Justice Ancelary Justice I really enjoyed at the time and I think it was the first it probably heralded a wave of books that started talking about the gender binary in a way that I think we now think is very passe, but at the time really wasn't. So I think that's probably slightly unfair of me. Oh yes. But yeah, I did I did really enjoy that book when it came out.
0: It was very it was very shocking. It shocked a lot of people. I think it gets huge credit for kind of almost spawning a sort of 21st century different style of space opera, which I think has really kind of hit a resurgence. You know, we've got that. We've got Yoon Ha Lee. We've got Arcady Martin.
2: That is a very good point. I don't know, because I remember some people at the time being very... Um... There are some people in the genre who think Anne Leckie is not perhaps like the pinnacle of of the genre and are a bit bewildered that that she won a Hugo. But I do think the impact it has had on the genre in the decade after it won, like it is very difficult not to say it has been hugely influential. So it is probably a worthy winner in retrospect for sure.
1: But there were people, you know, respected critics, people I'd known for a long time who were like, this book is literally unreadable because it has an ungendered character. And I was like, you know, you've been reading books in which the main character is called "Blebletherp" and uses words like croggled for the last 70 years, and so why has this tripped you up? It's not complicated. And that was, so that was really, really interesting. that people were just completely failing to be able to read it at all, despite the fact that it's, it's much less hard to read than a lot of SF. It was quite a simple novel.
2: Yeah. imagine how much trouble they'd have had if it was complicated. And then Rabbit Test, which won best short story, uh, which I think we've we've talked about this before. I, I we all think it's a great story. I thought the ending slightly whimpered rather than roared, but like still think it's a very deserving winner um, from Uncanny. The Space Time Painter by Height Yar. Do we know what Height Yar's pronouns are? If their pronouns are she her, this continues an unbroken streak of all women winning the top four categories for. I think since 2016. Um, but if it is not, it marks the end of the streak. So I would quite like to know what hi pronouns are. But um, if it's they, them, this opens, this opens a debate. Liz is Googling. I could have Googled, but I've got Liz, so...
0: You can hear me typing with this new thing, can't you?
2: No, I just... You have a look you get on your face when you're Googling, Liz. <laughs> you get Google face.
0: It's my... It's my knowledge. All knowledge is contained in the internet and <laughs> Therefore, I must be able to find this out, face. There is one news article referring to Haya as he, so we may have broken this streak.
2: I can't remember when the streak began, but it was it was uh, shortly after the puppies. So it's been a quite a long time. Shauna McGuire won best novella for Where the Drowned Girls Go, which was not my favorite of these novellas, but I did I did enjoy it. I enjoyed all of them. I think the Nevo was my least favorite, but I still like thought it was good
0: i didn't get to all the novel novellas this year sorry
2: i thought they were in general much better than the novels <laughs> like i think i enjoyed the nevo more than three of the novel finalists novella can go either way sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it's like not and this year i thought it was quite a strong category where the drowned girl go is kind of really sinister and creepy in a way that i really enjoyed so like it kind of i, I i'm not unhappy to see it win and then, Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher, the objectively correct choice, one best novel.
1: Well, we all three thought it was the best novel of the six. So, there we go. So, obviously, that's everybody, right?
2: <laughs> yup. Okay,
1: Hugo's Disgust.
2: How is Juff going, Alison?
1: Oh, it's amazing. So, yeah, no, I strongly recommend um, going and having life-changingly amazing travel experiences every day for five weeks until your brain leaks out of your ears and you forget what country you're in, what day it is, and the fact that you left your precious Kobo in the seat pocket of an airline, but you have no idea which one. Oh no. Yeah, so if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, consider running for Northbound Guff, because we'll be doing one almost immediately. And I really just mean Australia and New Zealand. They're probably, if you're anywhere in kind of the Pacific, you'll be good for this. June, who's one of the people who's hosting me here in Wellington, cannot tell the difference between my voice and Liz's voice on the podcast, which is, I think, a first. Apparently, we sound quite alike.
2: Well, you both do have Northern accents.
1: I mean, I have a Northern Hemisphere accent. (laughs) ha ha yup here's how to so if i say the word bath how do you say the word bath liz bath there we go that's how you tell
2: yeah because there's no r in it what there's no r in it bath it's
1: not
0: bath it's bath bath
1: yeah there's no r in bath
2: no exactly so why are you pronouncing it like there is one come on
1: okay right
2: What Alison has done here is started an accent conversation with two, firstly, confirmed contrarians, <laughs> <laughs> which is mistake one. <laughs>
1: anyway, that's the number one identifier of the difference between the Northern and Southern English accent. So for people who are not familiar with that is that, we, that, that people from the South say the A sound as an A-R in many words. Not all.
2: Because they're pirates. are. What's a pirate's favourite letter? Arr. Yeah, uh, you'd think that, but their true love is the sea.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at it that. <laughs> <That's very good.
2: laughs> it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. <laughs> Sorry, you were talking about Gov.
1: Um. So, yes, no, it's been a lot of fun. I have met fans in many different cities. I've got lots of stories. They mostly make some sense. I've done... I've done amazing things. I went to Woomera, John.
2: Yes, now, I'm very excited about this. And you wanted to keep it quiet because you weren't sure if it was going to come off, but it came off.
1: It was, yeah, that was the that was the thing. that w- I'd say it was going to be the peak of my holiday, but in fact, the holiday just has so many peak things. Like, today I was at a concrete model of Stonehenge in, in the New Zealand countryside. Love it. But anyway... <laughs> I went. To, I went to Woomera, which is the place that the British the British rocket po- program launched its rockets from. Um, quite a long time ago. It's still a protected air force base, but they have unprotected a little bit of it the the rocket park and the and the base canteen. And when you go and get your sandwiches, you go in and it, it you think you're just it just says it's a cafe, but it's in fact the base canteen and some. Australian Air Force people walked in while we were there, and they were wearing Australian Air Force camouflage. And I'll tell you, Air Force camouflage, which is kind of blues, sky blues, is not much use in the Australian desert, which is not blue. (laughs) They stuck stuck out like a sore thumb.
2: (laughs) But that you wouldn't be able to see them in the sky.
1: You might not be able to see them in the sky. I did discover that the um, I've discovered all sorts of things, but the. The Australian Air Force logo is exactly the same as the RAF logo, except with a kangaroo in the middle. It
2: just... <laughs> <laughs> that. That is just... That is bloody stupid, and I love it.
1: And I said that. And, and Ming turned and said, oh, but didn't you know the New Zealand Air Force logo is exactly the same as the RAF logo, except with a kiwi in the middle, which is at least a bird, if not a flying bird. And it turns out that kangaroos could attain greater height than kiwis (laughs) because basically the only way to get a kiwi to fly is to you know kick it um i i do not in any way condone the kicking of kiwis who are are kind of adorable and football shaped i've not seen a kiwi i have seen a kangaroo i've seen several kangaroos but i saw one kangaroo hopped in front of the car as we were driving along the road and luckily we were driving quite slowly at the time and the kangaroo was just far enough away that it was quite exciting and not too scary for Damien who really did not want to have a close encounter with kangaroo and it was an enormous kangaroo as well so that was quite nice see some emus with emu chicks by the side of the road as well that was quite good yeah Australia's big I've been on a lot of aeroplanes aeroplanes are still boring did you know that every airport in Australia as far as I can tell has a Brewery tap room in it, so I've drunk a lot of craft beer at breakfast time, on the on the excuse that I had to drink as much different beer as possible. I've got an airplane where I have to basically finish off as much postcards as are getting sent this trip, um, and also I'm hoping to sleep. And then I've got the airplane back to the UK, where I'm expecting to sleep as much as I possibly can. Um, And now I'm in New Zealand, and I've just got a couple more stops, and then I'll be back in the UK. It's been great.
0: Have you seen any animals other than the kangaroo that could kill you? Because I assume Australia is full of them. I have been
1: told by many people about all of the things that would kill you. Kerry Lenahan asked me, what's the most dangerous animal in Australia? And I said, I'm pretty sure that's man. And he gave me that kind of look. And he told me about various things that would kill me. But then when I went swimming, I went swimming in a kind of lovely rock pool in Sydney that's um, historic. And it had a no photography rule, um, which prevented me from taking the the photograph of the thing of the post that said, "Beware of the following things in this pool that might kill you. Do not let them kill you." <laughs> so that's what that's what Australia's like. Australia's full of things that will kill you, and New Zealand doesn't have any things that will kill you, yeah, apart from you know cars and so on. That's the, that, that's that's how you tell the difference. Between. And also, Australia Australia has some quite tall mountains, but they're all just kind of lumpy. They just look like lumps. Whereas New Zealand has lots and lots of pointy mountains. So even the little mountains are very pointy. It's a pointy country rather than a kind of flat, lumpy country. People probably knew this, but I didn't. I I kind of, from the vantage point of Walthamstow, Australia and New Zealand look much the same to me. But now I'm here, they're obviously very different. I knew that I've
2: read Last Chance to See. So the only things I know about New Zealand and Australia basically come from Douglas Adams explaining them. Because Douglas Adams is very good at explaining things. If you took the whole of Norway, scrunched it up a bit, shook out all the moose and reindeer, held it 10,000 miles around the world and filled it with birds, then you'd be wasting your time because it looks very much as if someone has already done it. That was Douglas Adams' description of the south part of New Zealand.
1: So the first episode of Last Chance to See is about the Kakapo, and since then they've been doing a Kakapo recovery programme, and I believe there are a Kakapo at Zealandia where I'm going tomorrow. I don't know whether I'll actually see one. It's a wildlife refuge rather than like a zoo. Zealandia is the most amazing thing. They basically took a square mile of the middle of Wellington, not quite the middle, but a square mile of urban Wellington and built a chainmail fence all the way around it with little with like links and killed all the mammals inside. Or, you know, displaced them, but basically got rid of everything in the space that wasn't a New Zealand native and they've managed to keep it more or less mammal-free except that the house mouse managed to get in through these. They, they didn't make the gaps quite small enough. And so they, 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 they control the house mice, but other than that there are no mammals in Zealandia and they are trying to essentially make it a safe space for birds and it's had the effect that there are birds that were rare in Wellington that are now nesting all over Wellington because they basically recovered in zealandia and are now nesting elsewhere in the city so it's very exciting so that was all good and hopefully i'll see a kakapo kakapo are much reco- well they're not much recovered but they are they are not so da- endangered as they were at the point where um Cowardine and adams were writing last chance to see
2: oh yeah you, you go liz i was just can say that that Adams, when Adams and Cowardine went, the people who were like working in the conservation effort for the Kakapo were very against them visiting. But it turns out that their visit did a lot for the animal and, and for the conservation effort. So it was retrospectively a very good thing, I think. And they did, in the book, they kind of describe how they turned, they did kind of winkle their way into the affections of the people. Um, but anyone who hasn't read Last Chance to See, it is a phenomenal book.
1: I... I- Downloaded the radio show because it's a radio show, right? That then became a book. Um, I, I don't know if we know of any others like that. And and I put on the first episode, you know, like a bedtime. I kind of put it on, and it's been more effective than I think anything else ever at putting me to sleep. So I've listened to the first ten minutes of the first episode of the radio show about forty-five times. I have no idea what happens in the rest of the series because you just just at all there's like sounds of the jungle.
2: It was commissioned as a book and radio series simultaneously, I
1: believe. Oh, right. Yeah, that's probably right. Fair, fair.
2: Because they were like, if, if you want Douglas Adams to do a thing,
1: he's good at both.
0: I was just going to tell you some a cool Kakapo fact, which is there are so few kakapos that they actually genome sequenced all of them and basically built a big family tree of every single Kakapo that it was alive in 2018. It's really cool. That's awesome. I'll put a giant kakapo family tree in the show notes.
2: Zealandia sounds cool. Please take lots of photos.
1: I mean, there'll just be photos of, bird, of, of green spaces with pixels in them that are birds.
2: One thing I will say when I did my TAF trip report was that the one thing I never thought at any point was I regret taking that photo. And several times I thought I regret not taking more photos. So I would just photograph indiscriminately.
0: It'll be like my photo of a snake. Well, you can't actually see the snake, but I'm like, there was a snake there.
1: Okay, they maybe don't have kakapo. I know kakapo were. I think kakapo
2: have been reintroduced to the mainland, though. So I would have thought if it was anywhere, it would be there, but maybe not.
1: See, like, they only have them in. They have. They probably have them in sanctuaries because they're still. They're still enough that they know every bird, right? So I think they probably have them at sanctuaries yeah. that are a long way away
0: from people. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the link I put in the show notes, it's got a map. Ha! It does have a map. I, I saw a load of birds
1: coming up on the train, and I was when I got to when I got to Wellington. I said to Smitty, "So, so okay. So I saw these birds coming up on the train. They kind of look like they looked a bit like moorhens, but on stilts." So and she was like, "Oh yes, no, I know. <laughs> they're pappacase. I think they are. They're um they're like a bit like moorhens, but they're very they're very common birds. But they're basically swamp." So it's useful if you're a bird that lives in a swamp to have to, to have long legs. So far having fun. Yeah, no, it's been amazing. It's unbelievable. Thank you to everyone who voted for me and who supports the fan funds. Um and hopefully I will write trip reportage that will will amuse you. Um oh, and I went to I went because I'm a nerd, I went to a Lord of the Rings location today, just just one as a kind of token Lord of the Rings location. And John, I posed against the Lord of the Rings height chart marker, so I can confirm that I am taller than a dwarf, but a much taller than a hobbit. <laughs>
2: I friggin love it, brilliant.
1: But not as tall as Gandalf.
2: No, no, that's fair.
1: Oh, but God, Gandalf's not yeah, as no, tall as you fair. think he is because he's got a big pointy hat. <laughs>
2: That's true. We should buy you a big pointy hat. Um, and I'm going to ask you one question, and then I suggest we move on from guff. And my question is, have you have you ever done anything like this before? Have I ever? Done anything like your guff trip before? Um... How novel would you rate this experience?
1: Oh, no, it's like...
2: As experiences go.
1: No, it's insane. It's like nothing else I have ever done in my entire life, because it's the way that you do a thing and then the next day you do another totally different thing that is also kind of like, I'm like, well, I spent a day in Christchurch and I learnt all about how it's recovering from the earthquakes. So I saw these amazing views from its gondola and it's, and every day is like this, even the days that don't have anything much in them. I, I, guess, I guess cruise ships might be like this, except that I think that the experiences that people get are very sanitised, whereas a lot of the experiences that I've had on this trip have been kind of very none they'd be like totally different because they'd be like a particular fan has said oh we should do this and then we've gone off and done that and that's the thing that's that's so amazing about it and i have spent a lot of time with a lot of different fans and i've just managed to cancel my hotel room for auckland because i'm staying on joe van eckeren's couch so you know Ooh,
2: say hello to joe for me
1: so 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 it's an extra person that it's an extra host but also an extra guffy I I was worried that some of the bits of the trip weren't quite guffish enough because I didn't have a host but I've got one there for Auckland. Um, The other thing I was going to say though is um, the average person in the UK generates carbon emissions of about 5.2 tonnes in a year and the carbon emission calculation for this trip is about 5.9 tonnes. So I do have to I have to make it worth it in lots of different ways. There's a lot of, you know, giving back to fandom in terms of of generating content about fans and, and science fiction in different places, but also making this trip worth it in terms of things like trip reportage and sending everyone their postcards and stuff like that. And, you know, that's a lot of carbon emissions. That sort of travel, as well as being a sign of enormous privilege in general, is not actually sustainable for everybody all the time. So, I mean, it's quite important that when you do it, you actually kind of get the word out about it. So you try and give some sense of what it's like, I think. I mean, I know that there are people out there who are generating that that amount of carbon emissions every week. So, you know, but they're they're wrong. I mean, I am flying economy. I'm very fortunate because... Although I'm a a lot of people I talk to can't fly economy because of various health conditions, but although I have some health conditions, I'm also very short, which is a real bonus if you're trying to fly economy. Let me tell you.
2: Yeah, no, that is fair. All right, first pick, Cox and straight in. So I'm going to pick a game. The game is called Don't Play This Game. It is currently kickstarting, but they have a demo that you can play and they describe it. Oh, God, how do they describe it? They describe it as something like a cross between the ring and Pokemon Go. So it's a journaling game and it encourages you. So you're basically playing a character and something is following you. And the idea is that by playing the game, you are opening yourself up to this thing, which will then get in your head like the ring. It is a solo journaling game, it uses dice and a journal, but it also encourages you So, like, in the third event I played, it was like, go out into your local community and take a picture of the place you wake up from this dream, and then describe it. And so it is encouraging you to go and explore your surroundings for like, specific things. So like, one of the prompts was like, go somewhere abandoned, take photos, explain how you break in.
1: So it's like a scavenger hunt kind of yeah it's it's
2: really it's really it seems really cool i've been really enjoying playing it the reason i wanted to bring it up is that is that I, I i thought it was kick it i thought it might be good to point people at it because it is currently kick-starting and by the time you listen to this it will have about a week left it is a british project and you can pledge for 15 quid to get the pdf And there is a demo, so you can play the demo, and if you hate it, don't back. But if you find it very intriguing, like I have, then back. Next, Liz?
0: All right, I'm going to pick a book, and the book is called Love Theoretically by Ali Hazelwood. And I I picked this one, to be honest, mostly because I think John is going to get a kick out of this. It is a romance novel I read on a plane, because I like reading romance novels on planes, because they don't generally take, you know, have super complicated timelines and plots and so on but this is a romance novel girl meets boy when the girl is basically fake dating for money the aromantic asexual brother of the boy and then she discovers that the boy is on her um tenure interview committee at MIT
2: <laughs>
0: so that is not a scenario i'd come uh, come across before Basically, yeah, she goes to meet the hiring committee and turns out it's the annoying brother who is almost seeing through her kind of fake dating of the brother, which he's doing, you know, so he can get his family off his back. And yeah, it's all about being a sort of, it's all about theoretical physics versus like experimental physics. And it has like a terrible mentor and the roles of women in STEM all around quite a satisfying romance plot. So it's quite fun. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. It sounds really stressful and triggering.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, okay, no, I can see that read.
0: I should say it's very American. So it is all about getting that, like, tenure track position in America, which, from my external view, seems like a massively stressful thing that everyone goes through in America that doesn't have quite the equivalent in the UK, doing that round of all the tenure track stuff.
2: Over here, it's basically like, can you get a fellowship that they will promise you a permanent job after?
0: It just works differently, right?
2: No that sounds really cool. Uh I might have to look that up. I still haven't read the book. The 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 perfume book about the serial killer. What's that one?
0: Oh, base notes, yeah.
2: Yeah, I still haven't read that and that's still that's like another one that you did that sounded delightful that I haven't got to yet. Um so I really I really do need to read more of the things Liz tells me to read. Allison, you've had lots of time to do pics on your guff trip. What's your pick today?
1: I've had lots of time to do reading and watch movies. I have, in fact, watched some movies and I'm not going to pick any of them. Um, I, will, I have an anti-pick, which is watching movies on planes, which is not good for you or the movie. Um, I'm still going to do more of it on the plane back, but there we go. Yep. Um, I'm going to pick Australia. Australia is a country Um, it's full of nice people and fun stuff that you can do and it's got some extremely cute wildlife and I understand quite a lot of wildlife that will try to kill you though I didn't personally notice any wildlife trying to kill me Um, and I was there for about three weeks and I'm going back because I liked it so much for another four days in a few days time and yeah Australia it's great you should go nice and it's obviously very homogenous Um, It's all exactly the same everywhere. It's not. Everything in Australia is different. Right, so Australia, that's my pick.
2: And that was the Octothorpe podcast. And it's goodbye from me.
1: It's
0: goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.
2: The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license.
0: This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.